0: So today we're going to start our new uh, sermon series on Elijah, women's women, if you were here last spring, you know all about Elijah, we've done that study um, in women's Bible study, but we're going to be um, studying Elijah and how he, has lit, he lived faithfully in a fallen world, and our world is very fallen, I don't know what's going on in your life, but I know there have been some difficult circumstances in my life recently, and we're going to look at Elijah and how he imperfectly, but trusted God in the middle of challenging circumstances. And we're gonna see how that applies
1: to our life today. Now Elijah, who was from Tishbe in Gilead, told King Ahab, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, the God I serve, there will be no dew or rain during the next few years until I give the word. Then the Lord said to Elijah, go to the east and hide by Kareth Brook, near where it enters the Jordan River. Drink from the brook and eat what the ravens bring you, for I have commanded them to bring you food. So Elijah did as the Lord told him and camped beside Kerith Brook, east of the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat each morning and evening, and he drank from the brook. But after a while, the brook dried up, for there was no rainfall anywhere in the land.
0: Have you ever faced a new challenge and realized that you needed to get prepared to fully face it? Well, Jason Dean did. In fact, it was a life and death challenge. Jason is an attender here, and he has served uh, in the Marine Corps. And this is a little bit of Jason's story. He says, in 2009, I was the weapons company commander for the 2nd Battalion, 9th Marines Regiment. We had just gotten home earlier in the year from Iraq deployment. We spent the summer taking leave to spend time with family while catching up with annual training. We were not supposed to deploy again until late 2010 or early 2011, but things quickly changed. The president and senior military leadership decided Afghanistan was a significant problem. They decided to send 30,000 additional troop service members to Afghanistan. We got orders. We were to be boots on the ground by July 2010. The reaction from the company was one of excitement from the younger Marines. The older, more experienced Marines quickly realized what we were going to do. We were headed to one of the most dangerous places in the world and had about six to seven months to get ready. We were headed into a season of hardship. There was an unspoken understanding that men were going to get hurt and that some would not come home from this deployment. My company team's job was to prepare the men morally, mentally, and physically to accomplish the mission of pacifying our operations while keeping our honor clean. We quickly developed and executed a training plan. Training for war is much like training for a sports team training camp. It's difficult, long, and you spend time doing drills over and over again, so you can't get them wrong. The harder it is, the better. We wanted to train so hard that the actual fight seemed easier. So we trained day and night in heat and cold in the swamps of North Carolina, the bitter cold of North Virginia, and the nasty hot mountainous terrain of the Mojave Desert in California. We went for days on minimal sleep with little food, in extreme conditions away from our families, each platoon trained in expertise in its respective mission set. And through this grueling seven-month workup, I spent a lot of time alone and thought. As a leader of Marines, you're told to wear a stone mask and be a well of fortitude for those you lead. You're responsible for mission, success or failure, and the lives of those in your charge. It's a lonely place. And I leaned on psalm 91 and trusting that God was always with me, guiding me and giving me strength to do all that must be done, and by his strength, I got my personal affairs in order. I wrote letters to loved ones in case i didn 't come home, and I bid my love goodbye and that, that, uh, that wife was his, uh, uh, with that love was his wife Josie and Um, There's more that I didn't have, we don't have time to read today, but Jason was proud of the deployment and what they accomplished there, including uh, helping create a safe space for an Afghani kid's school to be reestablished. They were able to protect and supply that school, and in the course of his deployment, 15 men uh, in his uh, his unit lost their lives and hundreds more um, left with emotional and physical scars. But the truth is, without the preparation that that Jason and his leadership team did, uh, I'm sure many more lives would have been lost and their mission wouldn't have been nearly as effective. And sometimes when we're headed into a new season, we know that we need to get prepared and we train. And sometimes we realize as we look back as we've entered into a new season that God has done preparation in our lives that we didn't even fully realize And today we kick off a new series looking at the life of Elijah called Faithful Living in a Fallen World. Now, Elijah was one of the most influential prophets in all of Scripture. He appears upon the scene in a low point in Israel's history, and he calls his people back to serve the Lord. And he was in his own life and death struggle, you know, his own life was threatened but he was in a life and death struggle for the hearts and the minds of the people that he was called to serve and love. But before Elijah was ready to be used by God, God needed to take him through a season of preparation and that's what we're going to look at today. Now a little bit of background on Elijah. Elijah's a prophet and I know this <coughs> excuse me, conjures up all sorts of images and ideas of what that looks like. But essentially, prophets are truth-tellers, and they call people back to the truth of what it means to love and to serve God. Now, there were two kind of prophets that we see in the scriptures. The first is writing and teaching prophets. And these are many of the books of the Old Testament are actually by prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah or Joel or Michael. And they're called to act, but their impact was primarily through their words, and they recorded their words for us and for the people to hear and to share. And there was a second group of prophets, and Elijah and his disciple Elisha fall into this category. And their, their, their uh, impact was primarily through their actions. God called them to move into the world and act. And yes, they speak, but others recorded their words. And so John the Baptist was, was an example of a prophet like this in Jesus' day. Now, we want to take you into this story and see Elijah as the real human being, somebody who's just like this. And I love what Priscilla Shire um, shares about Elijah. She's the one that, uh, that taught and led um, the women through this study. She says this. She says, none of the biblical heroes were intended to be an exception. They're all meant to be examples of, what, of us, of what happens when an ordinary life intersects with an extraordinary God. I love, love that last part. They're to be examples of us, of what happens when an ordinary life intersects with an extraordinary God. If you want to take a deep dive on the book of Elijah even deeper than we're going to take over the next five years, I would encourage you to check out her study. And there's actually a place that you can check it out at the Info Center in our small group resource library. But my hope and my prayer for this series is that this inspires us to think about what does it look like to live faithfully in a fallen world. Now, a little bit of context before we dive into the story. Um, Israel, uh, one of their greatest kings, was a king named Solomon. And Solomon started off really well serving and following God. But throughout the course of his life, he began to introduce idol worship into the land. And many of his uh, 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 descendants, uh, the kings that followed him, followed into this pattern. And it was disastrous for the kingdom eventually splitting the kingdom of Israel into two separate kingdoms. But to dive a little bit more into the background and to take us from the time of Solomon to the time of Elijah, we're going to look at a short video clip from the Bible Project. This is one of my favorite resources to study the Bible, and we wanted to give you just a little glimpse into the Bible Project and what they teach on this section on the book of Kings. And so
1: watch. The next section of the book opens with Solomon's son, Rehoboam acting just like his father. It's a very sad story of greed and lust for power. He tries to increase taxes for slave labor and under the leadership of Jeroboam the northern tribes reject this they rebel and secede and form their own rival kingdom and so now in the story you have the southern kingdom Judah centered in Jerusalem with kings from the line of David and now this new northern kingdom called Israel whose capital will be Samaria eventually Jeroboam also goes on to build two new temples to compete with Solomon's temple in the south he puts a golden calf in each one to represent the God of Israel the connection to Exodus 32 and the golden calf, it's all quite explicit. From this point on, the story goes back and forth from north to south, tracing the fate of both kingdoms. Each one had about 20 successive kings, and as the author introduces each king, he evaluates their reign by a few criteria. Did they worship the God of Israel alone, or did they promote the worship of other gods? Did they deal with idolatry among the people? And did they remain faithful to the covenant like David? Or do they become corrupt and unjust? And according to these criteria, the author finds no good kings in northern Israel, zero for 20. And then in southern Judah, only 8 out of 20 get a positive rating, which connects to another huge purpose in this book. And that's to introduce the role of the prophets, key figures in Israel's history. So in the Bible, prophets were not fortune tellers. Rather, they spoke on behalf of the God of Israel, and they played the role of covenant watchdogs, which means they called out idolatry and injustice among the kings and the people. They were constantly reminding Israel of their calling to be a light to the nations, that they should obey the commands of the Torah, and so the prophets challenged Israel to repent and follow their God. In these center sections for each king, God then raises up prophets to hold them accountable. The most prominent prophets are the northern ones, Elijah and his disciple Elisha, right here in the center of the book. Elijah was a wild man of a prophet living out in the desert, and his arch nemesis was the northern king Ahab and his Canaanite wife Jezebel.
0: So we're going to jump into the story. So grab a Bible, and if you're using one of our Bibles, it's on page 298, or grab your favorite Bible app, but we're going to start in 1 Kings uh, chapter 17, verse 1. Now Elijah, who was from Tishbe in Gilead, told King Ahab, As surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, the God I serve There will be no dew or rain during the next few years until I give the word. Now, Elijah's story kicks off rather abruptly in this narrative of kings. And in fact, there's 43 43 words in this first little verse, but there's a lot packed into those 43 words. In fact, this verse sets the stage for the next eight chapters of action. And we're not told much about Elijah, probably because people, uh, because when Elijah became famous, people knew who he was. But one of the first things that it's important to know about Elijah is what his name means. You see, most Jewish names had specific meaning. And if you look at what Elijah's name means, his name means Yahweh is my God or the Lord is my God. Elijah's name speaks to his purpose and his calling in life. And the second thing we learn about him is where he's from. He's from this area called Tishbe in Gilead. It's a rugged, mountainous area. It was a rural area. It was uncultured. And you kind of have this vision of this rural, rugged mountain man in fact, uh, Nathaniel Summers in his study guide for group leaders that he, uh, that he shared for, for group leaders, which group leaders, this is a great resource for you is if you want to dive into this uh, series with your groups. But he says, Elijah is a man from nowhere with no, ner- no noteworthy lineage or privilege. And yet God sends him into the urban center of Israel to speak truth to the king of Israel. And it's a reminder to us that God often chooses unlikely people that we would never choose. And I think pretty quickly we see that Elijah is a man of courage in speaking to the king. You see, kings typically get what they want. In fact, there's a story in the next chapter where uh king ahab wants this vineyard uh, that's next to a piece of property of his and the man won't sell it he's not supposed to sell it because of some jewish laws that are in place and so he's pouting and his wife jezebel has the man framed and killed so that ahab can take his property and his vineyard so yeah king ahab was not a great king in fact remember that criteria that was listed in the bible project Uh, The kings were called to worship the God of Israel alone. They were to rid Israel of idolatry, and they were to be faithful to the covenant. And Ahab did none of these. In fact, we read in 1 Kings 16, verses 32 and 33, it said First Ahab built a temple and an altar to Baal in Samaria, and then he set up an Asherah pole, which was another form of pagan worship. He did more to provoke the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than all the other kings before him. And so when Elijah comes to Ahab, one of the things that he says to him, he says, the God who I serve. It's an implication, and it's clear that the implication is correct, that he doesn't serve, that Ahab doesn't serve the Lord. And it's interesting, this word that means serve is a verb that means to stand up, to rise up, or to take a stand against. In fact, the message translates this as Ahab was, uh, it's translated, before whom I stand in obedient service. This is how Elijah described what God called him to do. And standing is a posture that's ready for action. Now, as we've already mentioned, King Ahab served Baal, and Baal was the god of the original inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites. And Baal happened to also be the wife of Ahab's wife, Jezebel. And in the ancient world, there were many gods and goddesses, and each god had a specific geographic area or a particular um, natural force that they controlled. And so this area previously had been under Baal's control, and Baal was also a god who supposedly controlled the waters. It was said that he had defeated the sea and he distributed the waters as dew and as rain. And Baal was also the god of lightning and storm and he was responsible for fertility of the land. So when Elijah says it's not going to dew or rain unless I give the word, he's speaking for the Lord and he's setting up a challenge to Ahab and his god Baal. And when he says it's not going to do or rain, this word do means either a light rain or mist. And then the rain that he's referring to is the, just the watering of the earth and season. These were agricultural peoples that depended on the regular rain to replenish their earth and to sustain their crops. Now, this theme of God controlling the waters uh, carries all the way through this next eight chapters through the stories of Elijah and Elisha as many of the miracles that they have to do with water. And through them repeatedly, God is demonstrating that he is the one in control and not Baal. And now while the challenge is set, God has some things that he wants to teach Elijah before he sends him into action. And I believe that as we look at this, we're gonna see three things that he wants to teach Elijah in this season of preparation. First, God is teaching Elijah to listen, then he's teaching him to obey, and ultimately, he's teaching him to trust. In short, God is shaping Elijah into the man that he needs him to be. You see, God's got big plans for Elijah, But there's work to be done to shape Elijah into that man. And so after he issues this challenge to King Ahab, then the Lord said to Elijah, go to the east and hide by Kareth Brook, near where it enters the Jordan River. Drink from the brook and eat what the ravens bring to you, for I've commanded them to bring you food. So God calls Elijah to go hide for a time. He knows that it's going to get dangerous. Uh, probably his life was under threat from King Ahab. And again, in the next chapter, we see Ahab's wife Jezebel begins to kill the prophets of the Lord. And I also wonder if there's even a little bit of sense of protection from himself. Because maybe there are things that God needs to form in Elijah so that he's going to have the ability to to stand and withstand the challenges that God is going to call him into in this next season. You see, we get into trouble when our charisma and our competency exceeds our character. And there sometimes our character needs to be shaped, it needs to be grown before we're called into our full form of leadership because when it's not then leaders get into trouble and we see this oftentimes in the marketplace the church is not immune from this either so god sends elijah into this season of preparation and we can tell this based on where god sends him and the name of the place. So he sends him to this place called Careth Brook, and it's it's near, it's in the general vicinity of where Elijah's home is in the wilderness. And this word brook means kind of an intermittent stream. And so because this is a dry and somewhat arid area, when the spring rains come, this brook would have been full of water. And then as the heat of the summer continued, the brook would slowly dry out. And I kind of picture it as kind of a cavernous area that he would have gone to. But it's an area that's close to home, but it's not his home. It's far from the palace where God has called him to confront Ahab. And it's far from the action of that place. But it's also not home, the place where Elijah would have been most comfortable and with the people that he would have been the most comfortable with. There's not a lot happening out in Kareth. It's a pretty remote area. Uh, in our day, there would have been no cell coverage, no Wi-Fi, and virtually no people. This is back to basics for Elijah. And this word, uh, Kareth, it actually comes from a word which means to cut down or to cut off. And Elijah's going to be pretty much cut off from everything and everyone that would bring him comfort. And then this word this word also is the word that sometimes means uh, being put to death. It's a phrase that's being used for uh, being put to death. And I think there are things in Elijah that God knows needs to die off before he can fully use him. And so God starts by teaching Elijah to listen, even when he knows listening may be challenging. Because I wonder if Elijah you know, responded to this call by God to go to the palace. And then fairly quickly, he sends him off into the wilderness, but he has to listen to hear to make sure that he knows where Elijah is sending him or God is sending Elijah. And while the location that he sends him may be challenging, the way that God provides for him when he get there is even more challenging. Now, I had images of this as a kid, this uh, idea of, uh, you know, you hear these stories and, you know, you see pictures like this and kind of had this vision of Elijah out in this barren area where God sends these, uh, these ravens to bring him food. And I kind of had this picture of an eco-friendly grubhub, this kind of cool miracle. But as I began to think about the story, and actually as I read some of the work that Priscilla Shire did on this, I was reminded of a couple of things that changed my perspective on this. First, the Jews considered the ravens an unclean animal. And if you know anything about ravens, they're opportunistic feeders. They'll basically eat about anything. They pick from dead animals. Thankfully, they also eat fruit and nuts. One commentator described them as birds of filth and fear. And I wondered if Elijah thought, couldn't you have sent a dove or something else, a little cleaner to to bring me food? But the truth was God provided for Elijah, maybe not in a way that he wanted. In fact, the emphasis here is on the provision when it says God will uh, supply you through the ravens. And I think even in the midst of this time, God is also teaching Elijah to be grateful for the way that he's provided. So God is teaching Elijah to listen, and then he's teaching him to obey. And this is what we see Elijah do as we continue on in the story. It says, so Elijah did as the Lord told him, and he camped beside Kareth Brook, east of the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat each morning and evening, and he drank from the brook. Elijah obeyed and he did exactly what God had called him to do but I often wonder if Elijah struggled to understand and clearly there's a lot we don't know in this story but I wonder if he did struggle thinking why have you sent me here but in the midst of this God is teaching Elijah to trust him You see, each little step of listening, of hearing from God, and then obeying builds a relationship of trust. And God sees, or Elijah sees God's provision in a place of safety, even if it's an unusual place and a difficult place to live. And I think it's easy for us to kind of move on in the story and say, well, that's really cool. God provided for Elijah. But if you step into the story and really think about it from Elijah's perspective... You know, the first day, Elijah might have been a little grossed out about what the ravens were bringing him, but he had to be a little bit of amazed that these birds were feeding him. And the second day, maybe he kind of got used to it, but was still a little bit of amazed. And he's in this barren place, day three and day four and day five and day six. And eventually, I think the... The novelty of the place and God's provision, I think, probably began to wear off. And he was in his place of monotony and boredom, probably settled in. And then I think the questions may have arisen in his mind. And he began to think, or he may have begun to think, is this all there is? I thought, God, that you had called me to do something great. And how long are you going to have me in this place? And what's the point of all this? And then I wonder if he began to think, God, have you forgotten me? Pastor and author Jeff Mannion explores what happens to us in these places of transition and struggle in his book, The Land Between. And he says there's five things that we go through. And we don't see all those in this story with Elijah. We actually do see them later with Elijah as God is teaching him some different lessons But he says, we go through a cycle of complaint and then eventually meltdown. And then we begin to see God's provision and we experience his discipline and it ultimately begins to result in growth in our lives. In fact, as Jeff is reflecting on the Israelites in their earlier history, as they're wandering through their own wilderness, learning to listen, obey, and trust, this is what he says. In the wilderness travels of the Israelites, God was out to grow a specific fruit in this harsh environment. He wanted to produce a relationship of trust. He desired an intimate relationship with his people, and trust is the glue that holds any relationship together. This trusting relationship with God would be crucial to the people's ability to fulfill their destiny You see, God is teaching Elijah to trust him in the waiting because God's sense of timing often doesn't align with our sense of timing and he doesn't always explain what he's up to. And I think then the questions had to arise again in this final part of the story when Elijah sees the brook dry up in verse 7. Because after a little while, the brook dried up and there was no rainfall anywhere in the land. Now, the truth is that God wants to use these seasons of preparation, these seasons of struggle and difficulty to produce growth in our lives. He doesn't want any of this time to be wasted. And it's not just for ourselves. It's for those that we're called to care for, that we're called to invest our lives into. And I don't know about you, but you may be waiting uh, in a season. Maybe you have the sense that God has called you to something like he's called Elijah, but he's called you to wait. He's not called you there. Maybe if you're a student, you're in a long season of preparation for what you're gonna do someday when you get done with school. I remember those days at times of being bored or thinking, when will I get through? Or maybe you're just in a hard and a difficult season where you're not sure if God is really up to anything, where everything has been stripped away, and God is calling you to trust him, to look for his provision, even if he's providing in a way that you uh, maybe wish it was different. And he's calling for you to trust in his presence. You see, just like Elijah, God is calling us to listen, he's calling us to obey, and he's calling us to trust him. So I'm curious if we could sit down over a cup of coffee, what season would you describe yourself in? You know, is there something that God is working in your life right now? Maybe he's something he's preparing for you to do in this season or the next and how do you need to show up in this season? Because you see, Elijah had to do the things that God was calling him to do. Um, what are, are there things that you need to do? Or are there things that you need to be in this season? And then lastly, I'd leave you with this question. How do you need God to show up? You see through the story of Elijah over and over and over God shows up and he works miracles on Elijah's behalf. He works miracles on the people's behalf and we need to God to show up in our lives as well. And maybe you simply need reassurance that God is there and that he sees you or maybe you have some specific provision that you need in your life in this season. But whatever we season we find ourselves in. We need God to show up. And that's one of the things that we're going to do throughout this sermon series is we're going to have moments where we ask God to begin to show up for us. Um, You know, we use the prayer wall every week, but for the next five weeks we're going to have our prayer team available after service uh, to pray for you if there's something that you need prayer for. Uh, We're also going to actually invite our prayer team to be around um, in the auditorium in these next couple of minutes in case there's something that you need prayer for. I want to ask the prayer team to just stand up and get into position. And we're going to do this a little differently. We're going to give you some just simple moments to reflect on these three questions. What seasons are you in? How do you need to show up? And how do you need God to show up? And if there's something that you need prayer for, obviously you can communicate with God directly. But if there's something that you need,